from the 15th floor of the Energy Building, this is GNR Airtime, the podcast that explores the current trends from emerging and well-established industries hosted by the lawyers of GNR. This podcast is for general guidance only and does not constitute definitive advice. I know you're busy and, and you know, juggling between work and, and family. And thank you so much for agreeing uh, to speak, sort of to speak, and, and we can interview you and ask questions. Okay, Carol, um, tell us the stories about uh, Siloam, right? You're the CEO of the Siloam Hospitals Group, and I think the numbers of hospitals are, are sort of like adding more and more as, as, as uh, you know, as I think it's an, an, uh, maybe... It used to be like every month, but now probably it's, it's less so because of the of the situation. But yeah. tell us stories about Siloam being in the front line fighting COVID nineteen and how you work with the government to tackle the the pandemic. Because I know you've you know been called to the DPR and 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 to help with the government in, in trying to uh, you know manage the situation. Tell us some some stories. Thanks, Cindy. Um... We are a uh, network of 39 uh, hospitals and uh, 30 clinics. Uh, we are in 25 cities and uh, we have been uh, rapidly expanding in the past few years, as you know. Our first uh, hospital is the hospital in Lipokarawachi, which is our flagship hospital, uh, which is about uh, 25 years old. Everything that we do, whether it's from expanding or buying equipment or recruiting doctors, developing uh, clinical expertise, it really comes back to uh, the vision, which is why we do all this. And our vision is really to bring uh, better healthcare and uh, quality healthcare to as many people as we can in Indonesia. And um, and everything that we do comes back uh, to this vision, uh, and which is why when the virus first hit, uh, it was a big challenge for us, and it really tested our commitment to our vision. Now, when we first heard about the novel virus, we kept a close eye uh, on it, began preparing for it to hit Indonesia. There was talks of whether it would ever hit because. Uh, we didn't really see the first uh, SARS-CoV. Maybe we'd be lucky a second time, uh, but uh, we we had a plan on how we would screen, how we would isolate, how we would treat uh, patients. We had the government protocol, and we had we even had tents set up uh, to quarantine people uh, and everything. And and we were ready, or so we thought we were ready. But it when we reflect on the past eight months. We see that nothing would have prepared us for the challenges, the heartache, the tears that uh, we experience. It has been difficult, um, but on the other hand, we are so thankful because the opportunity that we have had to bring hope and healing to our country has just been an unparalleled. Now, the first thing. So, what did we do? The first thing we did was a decision. We made a decision to support the government and be at the forefront to fight uh, for the fight against COVID. Now, keep in mind, eight, flashback eight months ago, there was so much uncertainty. We didn't know how things would turn out. And then I took a look at my uh, uh, my books, right? 
And then I talked to my CFO and we decided, okay, if everything goes really bad, then, well, we have about two months of cash flow. That's where we were sitting. Now, we could conserve cash, which is probably a, 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 a good thing to do, or we could go all out. And this is where the dilemma was. But seeing that, you know, it was going, if it was going to hit, it was going to, uh, it would take everybody's concerted effort in order for us to fight this. So we made a decision early on, and this decision also uh, is supported by my father. And we said, no, we're going to go uh, and all out and fight. So what do we do? The uh, first thing is we put together a dedicated team of specialists under Dr. Allen, who is our head pulmonologist. Um, and uh, we have present in our network uh, the best specialists under Dr. Allen. And keep in mind that uh, at the very beginning, we knew very little about the virus, how it uh, reacts, how it behaves, uh, what medication it would respond to. So we reached out to institutions overseas. And we talked to them and, and we asked them what works, what doesn't work, what do we already know? Numerous case discussions and, uh, and constant trying of new things uh, to save patients and just pushing boundaries. Uh, we established testing early on. Uh, we're one of the first private institutions to start testing. We started testing in uh, March um, and uh, we uh, established uh, three hospitals to be dedicated. Uh, to treat uh, COVID with uh, another additional uh, beds up to 1,000 in all of our other units dedicated for COVID. Uh, when we say dedicated beds, it means that it's a separate area, separate ventilation system, separate staffing, separate equipment. And uh, early on, we started with tents and containers, but we moved to more permanent structures, such as prefabricated structures and buildings uh, modified for use. And we secured supply chains for critical supplies, uh, PPE, trial drugs. We bought 50 ventilators, I think, at the beginning. And I think we ended up adding to the 50 ventilators, hoarding ventilator tubings, reagents for testing, whatever, whatever the doctors needed. And we really went all out. Uh, it was not an easy time, but uh, we're so pleased that when we look back, we see that we have done almost 100,000 PCR uh, samples and uh, over 500,000 antibody tests. Uh, today, we test uh, either PCR or rapid tests or serology over 10,000 samples every single day. And that's just incredible to think that we have such a huge impact on so many people. And we have treated uh, over 4,500 confirmed patients. Uh, and uh, more suspected patients. Um, and so uh, Indonesia has come a long way from March. Uh, in, in March, we were 13% uh, of uh, the market share of patients being treated uh, because at that time there was very little capacity. Now with the development of uh, other uh, facilities who have equipped themselves to treat COVID, right now we're about two to 3% of the market share of COVID treatment which means that Indonesia, all the other facilities have also come a long way to supporting this fight against COVID. Carol, thank you. I, I think that's a really great example of decision-making in an uncertain environment and team building. Um, for the younger people here today, uh, I, I'd like to just talk a little bit with you about um, some of your earlier experiences. Uh, I understand you were a teacher and I'd like to know how the earlier experiences in your career 
uh, shape your worldview? And what lessons have you applied as an executive? Um, I uh, grew up living with my grandparents uh, from my father's side. Uh, they migrated from China earlier in their year, in their lives. Uh, uh, life was tough um, back uh, when they migrated. And so um, they really held to the importance of hard work and integrity and character. And uh, they believed that their grandkids needed to be taught this. Uh, growing up with my grandparents, you know, they're always saying, you know, you, you kids these days, you don't know the value of hard work. So I remember very early on that uh, my my grandmother, she used to wake us up uh, on a Saturday morning to uh, to scrub the scrub the roads, scrub the sidewalks, I mean, because she wanted us to know what hard work was. And surely watching my grandparents, they exemplified uh, in their own lives, hard work and the value of a simple life. Uh, and so that's the kind of environment uh, we, we grew up in. Uh, my, my parents um, uh, also, I also lived with my parents and grew up uh, in the same uh, home as them. Uh, also, uh, two very committed parents. I have uh, three younger siblings, um, two brothers and a sister. Uh, I finished uh, high school in, uh, in Indonesia. At that time, I decided that I wanted to be a teacher uh, and I wanted to educate the country. And that is all I wanted to do. Uh, my father was supportive. I went to school in the States, graduated with an educa uh, elementary education uh, as an elementary education major. Came back to Indonesia, um, started uh, teaching uh, at Sekolah Harapan, and then uh, also then shortly after started teaching at the Teachers College at uh, Universitas Pelita Harapan. Uh, and it was a wonderful time because I believe that the best way for us to have an impact on the next generation is to be teaching teachers. Uh, every year you teach 50 teachers and they will go out then and teach 30, 40 students each every year. And so there's that rippling effect. Um, uh, and, uh, then, and I thought that life was going as planned for me. And then there was a curveball. And uh, this is a story of why I, I'm in healthcare. Um, I live nearby to one of the Siloam hospitals and I, I frequent the hospital. And uh, just going there and feeling like the service not, was not where I wanted it to be. I remember uh, taking my son to physiotherapy, just waiting for hours and hours without knowing when we would be served, going to the emergency and just, you know, not having the best experience there. And the professionalism of the cashiers was just not there. And I kept on complaining to my father. And finally he said, well, you know what? Um, maybe uh, you should do something about it. Maybe you got tired of me complaining. So he said, go, do, go there and do something. Uh, and I said, uh, no, I, I can't. At that time we were up to baby number three. And so I, I said, I can't, I uh, got young kids at home. But uh, then when I, uh, the next time I went to the hospital, again, same experience. And so finally, out of my arrogance, I say, and ignorance, I said, well, how hard can it be? Pa, if you think I can make a difference, yes, I'll do it. And that's how I signed up. And he said, yes, come in for uh, a year and, uh, and see, and you can make a difference.
And so I did. Uh, it was May 1st, uh, nine, uh, 2012. And uh, my father introduced me to the doctors at Silwam Kubanjurok, said I would be there for a year. And then just uh, starting out with not knowing anything, um, but falling in love with the people in the system and the nurses and doctors who dedicate their lives to this cause and seeing how the hospital has such a huge impact on the patients and the families and the community that we serve just made me fall in love uh, with hospital operations. Um, I, I learned a lot. It was a steep learning curve. Uh, but I tell you, everything in medicine is common sense. <laughs> it's just a different subject matter. But really, it's all common sense. So it's nothing that you and I can't learn. And so uh, what was supposed to be one year has turned into a wonderful eight and a half year uh, journey and, and counting. So I've been in Salem for eight and a half years. Uh, I, I, uh, and being in the hospital, uh, there are a lot of things that you come to appreciate that you would regularly take for granted. Uh, I distinctly uh, remember multiple occasions where I would walk into a patient's room thinking again out of my arrogance, thinking that I would bring comfort to these patients and I bring comfort to the mother of a dying child. And uh, uh, on the contrary, walking away and thinking, wow, I really was blessed by talking to that patient. That woman really showed me a lot of strength. So we think we give, but in, at the end of the day, you know, you realize how much you, you get I remember that there was this um, couple, uh, a husband and a wife, whose uh, young child had just gone through uh, a heart a surgery, and uh, that child was about the age of my child, and those parents refused to leave uh, the ICU. They sat there in front of the ICU, they slept there, just, just waiting for their ch sick, sick child to recover. Uh, and, and whenever, you know, I, I would come up to them and they would uh, immediately, you know, ask, you know, what's wrong with my child? Is he, is he getting better? Is he getting better? Uh, and, uh, and watching and praying with them and watching them go through the whole recovery process. And uh, we continue to keep in touch. And uh, there's one day that the father shared pictures of the son, just smiling, beautiful, uh, healthy son. And I said, you know, your son's smile is so beautiful. And he said, Yes, he has a beautiful smile, but there is a difference. I said, what's the difference? He said, before the surgery, when he smiled, it was very hard for us to smile with him. But now that he's well, when he smiles, then we can smile with him. And I thought, so beautiful that, you know, your work can have such an impact on the lives of other people. And I think that above all, that's what's made me stay in healthcare. I think that health shouldn't be a luxury. Uh, quality health should be a right for, for everybody and it shouldn't be a luxury. And at Silam, that's why we push boundaries. That's why we open in Labuan Bajo and Bhutan, which by the way, into year five of operations, we are not EBITDA neutral. We're not EBITDA positive uh, at all. And, and you know, people ask us why we open there and we say, well, we got to find a way a sustainable way to bring healthcare to those places where people need, where, you know, it can be sustainable, that we're, we're not, uh, it's not being supported by another hospital. And that's our challenge, right? 
how can we work with a lower cost structure to make sure we serve BPJS patients as well? Uh, how can we work with a lower cost structure to go to Amwan, which where we where we just opened? Uh, and and uh, these are some of the challenges that uh, uh, we face at Siloam, and we continue to grapple with it. Wow, that's an amazing story, and and thanks for opening up um, your personal life a little bit um, and shared your values. And I think um, th there's a lot of uh, uh, women here, uh, Carol, and we have young, inspiring, uh, you know, women lawyer and and who's sort of like uh, still looking for the right career and the right uh, finding, try to find their purpose, and you know, all those those. Uh, um, Kind of uh, soul searching um, thing. So you're you were teaching, and then you sort of migrated to healthcare. Mm -hmm. But I think the I think the commonality between the two is is really you enjoying this in serving, and then you achieve that through you know uh, teaching and 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 serving in hospitals. But then you know the hospital was uh, remember it was 2016 or 17. Then CVC, which is a, one of the largest private equity. Um, came to invest in Siloam, and then I think that's when you became uh, you were promoted to the CEO, right, of of the of the hospitals group, if I'm not mistaken. How how does it feel? You were still young, and 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 you know you have young uh, kids, young children. You have four kids, and they're still you know at the age of I think below probably below ten back then. And you have CVC and there's this institutional investor, professional investor with a lot of expectation and a lot of KPIs. And how, how, was, how, how did it feel uh, to, to, to be in that position back then? Well, I am honored that CVC has invested in Siloam, really honored. With a name like theirs, with a reputation like theirs, there's no way they would have invested in Siloam. Uh, without also believing in uh, uh, what we do and why we do it and uh, the future potential of the business. So I think that the number one uh, answer is that uh, I'm, I'm honored. And the fact that it's been four years and they've let me stick around means that maybe they're happy with what I'm doing. So they haven't gotten rid of me, Cindy. So maybe they're pleased with with what we're doing. Um, it was very, obviously, uh, very overwhelming uh, in the beginning. Uh, I think that CVC came at a time that was where we really needed somebody like them. Uh, so as you know, Siloam has grown rapidly. I mean, from one hospital to two hospitals in, in a few years. But then, you know, when I started in uh, 2012, we had about nine hospitals. And uh, by the time I uh, then moved from the hospital unit to head office, to the corporate office, uh, 9, 9 to 26 in four years. So as you can imagine, it put immense pressure on the organization. Uh, the talent pool was stretched. The uh, organization structure and processes were not built for that kind of a scale. Uh, the management uh, bandwidth in order to monitor and uh, to uh, to give oversight to all these hospitals uh, also very lacking, uh, let alone the IT infrastructure that was not built to it. Uh, and, and all in all, all of this then led to poor corporate governance. Uh, so it was at a time where, you know, it, we needed a CBC to come in and bring more structure and an external challenge for us 
to uh, put things in, in better order. Uh, so uh, they were the ones to, uh, to uh, push us to really um, build organization capacity and to enterprise. Uh, what is the right structure if you're if you're going to grow to 50 hospitals? What's the right structure? How can it be an efficient structure and an effective structure? What are the kind of capabilities you need at the management level at the C minus one C minus two level? Uh, how should be the relationship between the hospital units and the regional office and the head office? When should we have a regional office? What kind of IT infrastructure should we put in? Uh, how would you uh, uh, monitor uh, corporate governance? How would you monitor performance? How would you hold people accountable? So these are all the things that they help us to work through it through uh, over the course of uh, five, uh, four to five years. So I have to say that we are a much better organization because of CBC. And I tell them all the time, I said, thank you guys for, for working uh, with us and, and pushing us uh, to, uh, for, for us to be our best. Um, uh, that having, uh, having said that, uh, we, um, it's inevitable that uh, coming from, them coming from an investor's perspective and us coming from a more operational perspective, there is going to be a lot of friction. Um, I, I, I don't see that friction as something uh, negative, but I do believe that it's something that will sharpen our judgment over time. You know, if you're thinking, oh, no, I'm gonna, I want to I want to spend on that capex, but what's going to happen when I bring it to CVC? They're going to say, no, I'm going to have to put together some justification. OK, so let's build a business case. Let's show them what the best justification is. Let's uh, compare it and have different um, external benchmarks. So. Obviously, it, it created a new level of discipline, and I can go on and on about that. But uh, but our relationship has been a very positive one, uh, and uh, uh, you know I I continue to discuss on many things with uh, CVC uh, more than just a, a investor portfolio company relationship. Uh, so it, it's it's been a good one, uh, not free from uh, tension, but. It's been a it's been a good relationship. I'm interested to know. I mean, um, you're you're so it's CVC. It's a big name. Uh, they're the one that actually you know wanted you to be the leader. And 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 as a woman, did you ever feel like I don't think I can? And and you know feel discouraged or feel like you're not prepared, you're not ready. That sort of feeling. Uh, did, did you did you have that? You know. I, I think that there are times in my life where I felt like I'm not ready for this, or I, I uh, you know, it's I, I've got a learning curve to co go over. But I've never felt that because I'm a woman. I probably felt that maybe okay, it's because of my age. You know, I uh, don't I have experience in this kind of a position elsewhere. But it's never been because uh, because I, I'm a woman. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, but yes, of course, I mean, there are a lot of things that, uh, coming into it, uh, feeling like, you know, there, there's a lot that I need to learn. Same thing with coming into the hospital though. I mean, I, I used to sit in a lot of the case discussions and morning meetings, uh, listening to doctors talk about like this patient coming in, septic shock and, uh, you know, uh, treating them with antibiotics and life support and ventilators and, and all that, not knowing a lot of this, but uh, 
really taking the time to learn it. And I, I think it is possible. Obviously, going to head office and with CVC being there uh, and at that time being new to the CEO role, I, it, there are times where it, it was intimidating, you know, it, what, what are they talking about? And a lot of new terminologies. But um, again, I think that it was a not much needed perspective because otherwise there's a whole different perspective of the investor that oftentimes the management team doesn't see as we become uh, very operational. But to answer your question, Cindy, I've never felt that uh, in, intimidated because I, I'm, I'm a woman. Uh, that's but good. So course. that's for women out there. <laughs> Never feel intimidated because you're a woman. You know, you know <laughs> we have a lot of uh, women in uh, Siloam, and I think there are a lot of women in healthcare. But um, uh, we have uh, a, a sixty percent of our management uh, or of our unit CEOs are women. So hospital CEOs or hospital director, either or, uh, are women. Uh, and actually out of uh, my regionals, I have five regionals and all five of them are women. And if you look at the whole uh, healthcare workforce, I mean, it's dominated by women. I mean, mm. 80% of nurses are women, right? Yeah. And I think that it's that um, uh, intuitive, intuitive nature to care that uh, draws a lot of women to the healthcare industry. Oh, you mentioned uh, about uh, when you were talking about your relationship with CBC uh, and sort of the, the new approach that was required when they became involved. Um, mm -hmm. You were talking about sort of, it sounded like a lot about building capability and capacity. Bill Gates and other people have noted that, you know, there are probably gonna be increasing pandemics uh, in the future, not just COVID, but others. And I wanted to know um, if how, uh, you know, your group is planning for that kind of eventuality. And also what kind of opportunities do you see for Indonesia generally in a post-COVID world? Actually, when I read that question, uh, I, I thought about this um, uh, a book, a book that I, I've been reading and it, gives a very good uh, perspective on uh, pandemics. A lot of what we're implementing uh, has been practiced for uh, for centuries. Uh, for example, the quarantine. The earliest forms of confinement came with the quarantines instituted in an effort to contain the Black Death that between 1347 and 1351 killed about a third of all Europeans. Says that you know the, they didn't really know why they should you should quarantine, but they noticed that if you separate people, it kind of slows down the pandemic. So the bottom line is, uh, pandemics are not something new. So when Bill Gates says that uh, you know others are predicting that pandemics will occur more frequently, that, that, that's nothing new. It, it's been occurring in the past, and as a human race, we have uh, dealt with pandemics uh, over many many centuries. So uh, I think that the idea is just uh, how can we be better prepared? Now, mm, there's always this um, there's always this this dilemma between saving lives and saving the economy. Well, I I do believe this is a false trade-off. I I don't think that you can save one without saving the other. And uh, in fact, saving lives will save the economy. So if anything, our focus should be making sure we save lives. Now, why I say that, I, I think two things. 
One is on the supply side. Unless you are able to save lives, then you won't be able to uh, secure the supply side. I mean, uh, think about all the factories uh, that have, have been forced to shut down because too many infections. The minute your infections arise and your uh, workforce is, uh, is affected, then it's definitely going to affect your supply side. It's going to come to a halt. Uh, number two is the demand side. Unless you get the pandemic under control and, uh, and the sentiment of people is that the pandemic is behind us and there's confidence from the public that it's safe to go out, then people are not going to go to malls. People are not going to, uh, to buy things because, you know, their, their idea is, you know, we have to stay for a rainy day. So we, we noticed this phenomena, which is Jakarta and Surabaya. Early on, Jakarta, uh, Anis uh, implemented a uh, mass lockdown, Bebe, probably the strictest one that we have seen in the whole of Indonesia. At that time, it was new, people were scared, so it was strict, it was enforced. Uh, the, uh, and after the, the uh, lockdown, we did feel like the numbers came down. The people desperately crying out for a ventilator was, became much less. Um, and so their rate of, of spread came down, so it's better. But then you look at Surabaya. I mean, Surabaya, they, they, they attracted a lot of criticism for not, uh, not being more strict with uh, a lockdown. It was a lockdown. It was not uh, fully implemented. People were still going to malls. But what happened? People self-implemented a lockdown. I mean, they pulled back and they kept themselves at home. Why? Because they're afraid. There's no confidence to go out. So, which is comes back to my point on the demand side. I mean, unless the sentiment is that it's safe enough to go out, uh, you, I will have a, a future. The economy will get better. Spending is not going to come up either. So, uh, saving lives will save the economy. And ultimately, I don't believe that the economy will really recover until we get a vaccine or herd immunity is somehow sustained. Vaccine, uh, vaccination or not. Uh, on the question of like what what can Indonesia do, right? And what is it going to look like for Indonesia uh, after uh, after COVID, uh, post COVID? I'm I, I'm not a economy uh, expert to say, so may not be the best person to to answer this. But you know, I think what we've seen is that before COVID, I mean, the world was so interconnected. It more interconnected than ever. I mean, it was it's like hyper globalization, right? And you could hop onto a plane and be in another country in a, in a few hours. It's just just an unheard of. Um, but what and and this was uh, e demonstrated even more uh, through the financial crisis in two thousand eight, which I mean, a problem in one part of the world spread really quickly to uh, the rest of the world. Uh, I I don't think that we can stop globalization. But surely, if uh, globalization was to be slowed down or reversed, uh, the trend was reversed. I think this is uh, only is this own something that only the pandemic could have done. And surely, we have seen this uh, with countries um, re uh, 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 re erecting borders and tough border controls and greater protectionism for uh, for people not to travel into the country. So globalization has. Um, 
has reversed uh, a lot, as all of you know. And I know that a lot of people will be thinking about, okay, so how is it that I'm going to uh, buy my supplies from not across the world, but have alternative supply chains, right? So there will probably be a move towards uh, regionalization. And uh, also, uh, also uh, explained in, in the book that I, I read from, which is called uh, COVID, The Great Reset, which is a great book, by the way. Uh, it's also saying that, you know, the world lacks good global governance uh, in that it, it, in many words, it means that nobody is in charge, right? Nobody's calling the shots. I mean, in the past, it kind of was America being the big brother, but now when nobody's really calling the shots uh, and, and that's why the, um, the UN, the WHO is, is not as effective because even their uh, authority derives it, uh, from other countries giving it power. And so there's going to be this every man for himself, right? I mean, think about it. It's like everybody's closed, shutting their borders. So every country is fending for themselves. So I think that uh, uh, Indonesia post-COVID will depend on how Indonesia is able to take advantage of these trends. But we're a population of 200 million people. It is the fourth largest population in the world. And there's plenty of opportunity to build local supply chains. Uh, I think we're so fortunate that we're in such a big population that we can lessen our dependence on, uh, on other countries if the government can empower uh, empower uh, local players. Uh, so how can the government fast track this? I think that it, it has to be through a PPP, a public-private partnership where they really empower the private. And sometimes there is this sentiment that, you know, the government should be all to all. And I think that is a mistaken sentiment. I think the sentiment should be that uh, we can together uh, uh, build this together. And so the function of the government is really to support us. Think about how much testing we do today. I think the latest number was like we do 40,000 uh, samples a day, which is far from where we need it to be. But you look at the government portion of that 40%, it is quite a, a small portion. And so uh, without a proper PPP, I think that it will be uh, challenging to uh, rebuild Indonesia in a post-COVID world. But I know that nothing is simple, so we'll continue to uh, support the government in how they see uh, is best for us to do this. Hi, uh, Carol. Hi, Gotham. Uh, thank you for sharing, sharing all of that with us. I guess one question I had, and it's something I grapple with um, sometimes is, you obviously do work um, with, in, in sort of what I would say very socially relevant sectors, right? Education and healthcare. Um, mm -hmm. But I obviously someone like CBC brings a certain level of international expertise and 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 a name to it. But I, but they are they're also you know a well-known private equity fund. And I think and I do a lot of work with PEs. Um, obviously, the, the key driver for them is profit. And, and their, their investors, IR, you know, their IRR sort of focus. How do you navigate that conflict, if you like, you know, mm -hmm. sort of the social relevance of, of, of the sectors you've chosen and partnering up with um, an institution that's naturally single-mindedly focused on profit? Yeah. 
That is a very good question, Gautam. And it's also something that I've struggled with over the years to uh, reconcile these two. Now, I don't see, uh, uh, I don't see uh, uh, these two to be mutually exclusive. I mean, after really, really reflecting on it and uh, seeking answers, I don't think that it's uh, mutually exclusive. Why? Because uh, I know that in order for us to sustain our vision, we have to have financial discipline. We have to be run like a business. If we are not run commercially as a business, we will fail to exist. So there's no vision that will exist without being profitable. Now, we are far from the profitability that CBC would like, which is part of the tension, right? Uh, and, and the differences in, in perspectives. Uh, and I can appreciate that. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and that's why we are so big on financial discipline. The healthcare industry, uh, hospitals especially, are very capital intensive. One of the major reasons hospitals go out of business is because they lack the financial discipline. And many of the hospitals that we have, uh, we have acquired were in that position precisely because of this. Uh, but when we come in, bringing in uh, better discipline and systems and marketing and everything, sales, you name it, we were able to make it a sustainable hospital. And there are a lot of mission hospitals in Indonesia, all kinds of hospitals going out of business and, and, and even more so in the uh, time of BPJS where you have to manage your costs very well. And in the time of COVID where revenues have come down 30 to 60%, but your costs have increased 10%. If you really are not ruthless about the way you manage your costs, you're gonna fail to exist and you are, we are no longer going to be in a position where we can create an impact and we can serve the country. Are there tough calls? Yes, Gautam, there are tough calls, especially when it comes to serving the underprivileged and serving BPJS. There are a lot of tough calls. And uh, I would love to be able to serve more BPJS. I would love to serve uh, patients in, in the outer areas of, of Indonesia. We just have to find a way uh, in order for us to do that. But uh, it's not black and white. Uh, we are not in heaven. We are still, there's still a lot of problems. So this is something that we grapple with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But I do see the two things going hand in hand. You have to. The optimism with which you approach it is something that I, I think that in itself is something which can inspire a lot of us. So, but it is something that I, as you said, is just in your face, this, this conflict between profit and the service aspect right so and understand but thank you for sharing your experience sure my pleasure yeah i think a lot of us can relate to that in our casual chat with the with the people in the office there is always this especially for the young people like one thing you feel like you want to serve and, and you know the people uh, your, your your country and you know your your community but on the other hand it's like you have to go work in a in a uh, capitalized word if you may call it and a lot of people think that's that's really attention and while it should not be seen as attention it's, it's like it's just how we live in order to exist you have to be able to you know 
the world is run in it in it in, in terms of economics, right? And there is a you know there is expenses, there is income, so it has to you have to be able to balance between your expense and your income, and try to you know in between find a way to to be able to do. Uh, or deliver uh, or manifest whatever um, purpose or whatever good cause that you want to do. So it, it has to go in hand. Otherwise, I think it's going to be a continuing struggle. But uh, it, it it and that struggle will never will never go, at least in my experience. But it's a way of finding the balance between the two and be able to do both at the same time. So I think I think that's really good what you're saying. Yeah, so just to, um, I mean, just probably putting it in context, because I mean, we're recording this for a women's series, right? So uh, probably if I can just pick up uh, on a more uh, women-centered topic. Uh, so I've, uh, so thanks so much for Carol for being here. Um, it's certainly been a pleasure to hear your trajectory. I think uh, Cindy's already mentioned, I think purpose is something that is very central um, in our day-to-day -day life. I think even though we work at a law firm, or we work in a very um, capitalist, uh, quote unquote, uh, industry. I think uh, purpose is always in the back of everyone's minds. Um, so it, it's, it's really refreshing to hear, um, Carol, you um, explaining uh, your trajectory and your career and how purpose is always at the center of it. Uh, I was just wondering in terms of being a woman um, and probably a very, uh, a, the, one of the few women leaders um, everywhere, um, probably not specific to healthcare, but probably for everywhere, there is still a, a very few women leaders. What are the things do you think you can do to pay it forward to other, um, to the new generations or to the uh, young women professionals on the come up? Um, so we know that you're, you've been very, um, you know, because of your uh, talent and your intelligence, you've, all, you've been able to make it so far in your career, but what are the things that you can give out to other women and how do you try to pay it forward, if any, uh, to the women uh, around you? Thanks. Thank you. I, I, I don't think my success is attributed to uh, just my hard work and, and, and intelligence. I'm sure not. I've been given a lot of wonderful opportunities in my life and being in this position is an, uh, a wonderful opportunity that I've, I've been given as well. So uh, thankful for that. Um, you know, I think that the best thing that we can do for women, I mean, it's not, it's not to give them pity. It's not to make it easier for them. Surely that's not what I would want. Want. I mean, I, I don't want people to treat, uh, treat me differently because I'm a woman, be a little bit easier on me. But I think what we can do is make sure that we uh, develop women according to their uh, potential, right? and to empower them and to give them opportunities to learn and grow and lead and to guide them so that they can fulfill their maximum potential. I, th I think that's what we do. I mean, it's more than putting in breastfeeding or pumping room. That's, it's okay, but and that, that's, that's not getting it at the heart of it. So I do believe it, it's empowering women to achieve their full potential at work and at home as well. On a more practical note, uh, I've, I've struggled as well with uh, managing time between children and husband and, and, and work and, and church and friends and personal time. Gosh, can't remember the last time I had personal time. Uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, for me, it's uh, you know being able to compartmentalize um, uh, 
when I'm at work and, and, and with working from home, this becomes a lot more difficult, the compartmentalizing. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you're at work, make sure that you have time to focus on work. In Indonesia, we are very fortunate that, uh, that uh, most professionals can afford domestic help, get proper help so that you can focus on your work when it is time for work. And that's the best thing that you can do for yourself uh, in your career. Uh, but, you know, when it's time for us to focus on our children, put away the phone. Uh, when it's time for us to uh, spend time with husband, put away the phone, put away the emails, keep it for another time. And uh, I think when you compartmentalize and, and kind of have a schedule, I know that sounds funny, but uh, have, have a, a little bit of a schedule to schedule your life. It becomes a little bit easier to manage your time. Not easy, but easier. All right, Carol, uh, with that, uh, I would like to say goodbye. Again, very much appreciated you coming here. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's always fun to uh, chat and see you virtually, Cindy. <laughs> thank you so much yeah. for the opportunity. Thanks. Here. Wonderful. Yeah, lovely, lovely to see you, to see you here. Um, yeah. Great. And uh, thank you, everyone, for, for listening in and for asking questions. And yeah, really appreciate the time.